So we're back in 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, we're actually spending four weeks just in 1 Corinthians 15 because there's a lot of material in that uh, chapter. <coughs> Dealing with the resurrection of Jesus, I am reminded when I, whenever I, you know, get into Easter, there's a lot of stuff I'll read about resurrection and the cross and, and whole you know, four weeks we're dealing with 1 Corinthians 15, which deals with the resurrection. I'm reminded of something that Jesus said uh, in John 11, uh, dealing with Lazarus when he was dealing with Martha and struggling. And I, and I use that passage a lot in funerals because it's a really good passage. And I just need to preach it again on a Sunday. It's been a while since I preached it. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And, and the I am statement um, it's emphatic. He's basically saying, I and only I am resurrection and life. There is no other resurrection. There is no other life. And the word, the concept of life is that which lasts. At the, the, not just the eternity of life, but life to its fullest. And resurrection and life are connected. Resurrection brings life. And life is there because of resurrection. That's what makes the 15th chapter so important. And uh, the church, some at Corinth, and remember, it always... It's, it's try to get the people of Corinthians to benefit of the doubt, all right? Jesus, Jesus ascended in 30 AD. They got the gospel in about 50, 51 AD. Paul's writing this in 55. They've only been Christians a short time. They had no New Testament. Paul's writing part of the New Testament. They didn't have four gospels. They didn't even have one gospel. They didn't even have one bad gospel. They had, none, they had nothing. And uh, they had what Paul and others had taught them. And, and most of them came out of pagan backgrounds. I mean, it's hard for us to understand the depth of paganism. I mean, paganism infiltrated every part of their life. It is, it is, a, it is just so corrupt of the idolatry, the immorality, the humanity, just the, the way they valued human life. You can't imagine. It's, it's hard for us to understand. I, and I know there's struggles with humanity and, and, and the value of life, and we're going to deal with that some in May in our family series but there was no regard for human life. Human life had no value. Your life was it. Even within the family, there just was except for the Jews. I mean, the Jews had it, yes. And so coming out of paganism and, and the struggles. And so, you know, Paul shows amazing patience with them. Uh, and we need to understand what's going on. So we're going to pick up in verse 29. And remember, the issue was some were denying the resurrection of the dead. They didn't deny the resurrection of Jesus, though Paul said, if you deny the resurrection at all, you deny the resurrection of Jesus. We saw that argument last week. So now he's going to begin to give some of the, the, the logical rationale for the resurrection. And then next week we'll see what the resurrected body looks like. So <laughs> the hardest verse probably in 1 Corinthians, maybe one of the hardest verses anywhere, it's very simple. Verse 29, talking about the resurrection, he says, what will those do who were baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? And so here we deal with the issue of baptism of the dead. And I will tell you, this is not complicated. We make it complicated, it's just not complicated. Uh, there are, <laughs> I've read different accounts of the number of different views of the baptism of dead. Uh, the going rate seems to be that there was a belief of about 40 different views in our day and age of baptism of the dead. Some say there's more than that, but they're kind of nuanced. And, and, and here's the struggle with baptism of the dead. It sounds so unchristian. You know, it's, it, it, if I said, 
We're going to have a baptism service on the pre-Easter, and if you got some dead relatives you'd like us to do a baptism in remembrance of them, you know, uh, we'll be baptizing. You can come and we'll baptize you in the memory of your dead relative. This place would implode. I, you would come after me with pitchfork, tar, and feathers. Some of you have already got them on hand just in case there's a reason for it, I know. I mean, be, because it's just, that's just horrible. And so we look at that and say, that can't mean that. It can't mean that you actually baptized for that. And so we come up with all these explanations. Sometimes the best explanation is the simplest. The trick is to understand why Paul used this analogy. At some point, when all is said and done, they had a group of people, Paul wasn't Paul, who baptized people for the dead. Now, it may, it may have been that there were pagans, you know, they got saved and their pagan relatives were already dead, you know, and they wanted to baptize, you know, whatever. Some say there was a, there, there may have been a catastrophe that occurred in a, in a plague or something that wiped out a lot of Christians before they were baptized. And so they had that symbolic baptism and that's fine. So, but, but I take it at face value. Paul says, y'all had a baptism service, probably only one, maybe there's a couple, where you baptized for the dead. Now notice, Paul didn't commend it. He didn't say, it. hey, that's okay. He didn't say, oh, good job. He didn't deal with it. He understood what was his stake. Maybe he had already dealt with it behind the scenes. His question is this, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, why would you have a baptism for the dead? Now, let me put it to you this way. Give me an analogy. If I have a Catholic friend, and I do have some, but if I had a Catholic friend who struggled with the concept of God forgiving, and they just didn't think God would forgive them for their sins. I might say, well, if you don't think God can forgive you for your sins, why do you go to confession? <laughs> now, I don't believe in going to confession. I don't go to anybody to confess my sins. Unless I sinned against them, I might say, hey, I'm sorry I said that about you. Uh, I'm sorry I called you that name. I didn't mean for it to come out publicly. It was in my inner voice. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. When people, I don't want people coming to me to confess their sin unless they're struggling with forgiveness. But I don't want people coming saying, David, I have a list of sins I want to confess to you. I'm like, no, you go to one of the other staff members. They handle that. I don't want that. <laughs> but I might say to my Catholic friend, if you don't believe that God forgives sin, why, why would you confess that? I'm not going to argue whether the confession is legit. I'm just going to ask them the question. I'm dealing with them where they are. When people are wrong about things, sometimes we have to deal with them where they are. And before we get too critical of the Corinthians for having some weird ideas, I'm going to be honest. There are people in our church, this may be some of you, who have some weird ideas also about the Christian faith. I know because you've shared them with me, and I'm thinking, well, that's really weird. That's almost as weird as baptizing dead people. So I didn't, I didn't say that to you, but I was thinking that, maybe. So... Don't get caught up that. Paul is just doing a rhetorical argument. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then why don't y'all baptize for dead people? That, that type of argument would sting. I mean, it would hit. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good point, Paul. Why did we have that silly baptism of the dead service? Then Paul asked another question. Why are we also, he's talking about himself and those with him, in danger every hour? Paul, Paul, Paul's constantly in danger I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I, I die daily. In numerous places, and this really, I think, in 2 Corinthians, he does it to some great extent. Paul will elaborate on the things he struggles with. I mean, by now, people are after Paul. I mean, Paul, 
When, when he came to Corinth, you go back in Acts, Acts uh, in the 15, 16, and 17, when he went to Corinth, he was run out of Philippi. He was run out of Thessalonica. He was run out of Berea. He was run out of Athens and ended up in Corinth. They were trying to kill him in some of those places. He said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why am I going through all of that? Why would I give my life if there's no resurrection of the dead? If Jesus hasn't been resurrected, if I am not going to be resurrected in the end. Now, one of the things in Greek life that there was a basic belief of, and it was sometimes in paganism, and later on it would creep into Christianity in the form of Gnosticism, is the total separation of the physical and the spiritual. The spirit was good, the physical was bad. And so some believe this idea that the body died and rotted and that there was this kind of soul that lived on in some sort of place for whatever value or reason. And Christianity comes along and says, no, the, the, the body may rot, and the soul so is going to be separated, but when Christ comes again, there'll be a reuniting of the two. And Paul will do that next week. Paul will deal with that brilliantly in talking about that. And so that was a fundamental message. We, we, we don't preach it. I don't deal as much probably as I should with that concept for several reasons. <laughs> I will start doing with that now if he's upset about that. It's okay, Wyatt. It's a good kid. Start him early. Some of you want to do that. Just if you do it, I'm not going to be too happy with you. I'll do that out there. Um, so, what the, what was I saying? I was talking about resurrection of the dead. Oh, yeah. So, one of the reasons, you know, that I don't necessarily deal with that a lot is because there's so much bad teaching about the second coming of Christ. And in 2023, I plan on teaching on the second coming of Christ, probably in about 18 months. But, you know, every time I deal with it, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that I, you know, I feel like I always start to go down these different roads to clarify all the mistaken ide the ideas that so many of you have about the second coming of Christ. That oftentimes I don't really deal with it much. But it is a fundamental teaching of our faith that, that Christ will come again. Just one more time. He's just come once. And when he comes again, we will all be raised up with him. And when we are all, when he comes again and we're all raised up, it's over. Hey, no more. Ain't no more chances to get saved. That's not, a, that's not a New Testament teaching. There's no more chances for people to come to Christ. There'll be judgment, the assigning of heaven and hell for all eternity, and that is it. We're through. And, that, and that's how it's going to be. And so the teaching, especially in the Greek culture, of the resurrection was critical. So they were getting it wrong. He's saying, then, why am I, you know, why have I, in Christ Jesus, I learned, why do I die daily? Why do I deal with all these? Verse 32, if from human motives I have fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, what does that profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So, the, the part about the wild beast in Ephesus, um, it, so, probably not ought to take it that he actually fought wild beasts. Um, that was a not uncommon idiomatic expression of dealing with lost, viciously lost people. First of all, in the Roman culture, Paul was a citizen, and Roman citizens can never be put in the arena to fight the wild beasts, unless they were stripped of their Roman citizenship, and he wasn't stripped of his Roman citizenship, because we know in Acts, uh, when he was about to be beaten by the Romans, he said, do you always be people like this? You know, and, and he just, that didn't happen. So we ought, we ought not to think about that way. 
the important thing uh, in that is to understand that he's probably, he's probably getting across is a common idea in the lives of Christians of the viciousness of opponents. He's saying, why? It's just a continued thought. Why am I going through all this? And then he, then he quotes a very popular saying of the day. Some think he takes it loosely from the Psalms and I don't, or Isaiah. I mean, I don't think that's really right. There was this old saying, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die. That, that's kind of like, I remember, um, gosh, was the 70s? Uh, the old Slitch commercial, Slitch beer, you know, go for all the gusto. You only go around once in life. Uh, go for all the gusto. Slaughter, yeah, I remember that. But <laughs> be careful how you remember that. I tried it, you know. So he goes on to say, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals or good character. And so... Yeah, that's kind of, it's kind of like sometimes Paul just throws stuff out, you know, and, and, and sometimes, how is that coherent with the other thing else? But what Paul, what Paul is getting through to them and what he is saying to them is, you don't believe in the resurrection. You need to be careful because when you, when you start to deny fundamental, essential doctrinal beliefs of our faith, you are headed down a path which will end up in corruption. I think the thing I see today most often, and I say this all the time within Christianity, is there's a movement that basically denies the historicity of the resurrection. When you deny the historicity of the resurrection, what you see then is an acceptance of every lifestyle around. The churches that are struggling with the foundational doctrinal beliefs of how we ought to live our lives, especially in terms of human sexuality and marriage and those things, almost always have denied either the authority of the revelation of God or the historicity, historicity of the resurrection. I mean, that's the, the discode hand in hand. And when you start to erode away doctrinal truth, then it's easy to forget all the rest. Now, I say all the time, we love people, we welcome people of all walks of life. We don't want anyone to feel like they have to change until they come to our church. We want you to come here, meet Jesus, and let Jesus take care of the rest. I preach that all the time. It's not my job to change people. It's my job to get them connected with the one who will change them. And uh, I was reflecting a little bit today. I don't know why I got nostalgic thinking about my past in a good way. Then it turned on a bad way. I'm like, man, I'm a pretty lousy guy at times. Without Christ, I sometimes wonder, what would I be like, Jesus, without you? And I really don't like that thought of what I would be like without Jesus. He is the one who changes. However... There is still an expectation of a level of character. When you lose doctrinal truth, you lose that. So he says, become sober-minded as you ought. And then he gives a command, stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So in other words, and, and, and this kind of goes back what we've seen a lot in Corinthians. That those who came from a Gentile pagan background we're starting to slip back into that background, or to that life. Going to the pagan uh, parties and, and celebrating and eating from the temple. And, ah, 
you know, the, the things that they were starting to do and, and go back, and they're letting their doctrine slip, and they're letting their practices slip, and Paul just says, stop sinning, because that's what it is. You know, that's, that's actually pretty good sermon, stop sinning, because <laughs> you know what we do a lot of? We make a lot of excuses for sin. I mean, I, I you know, sometimes I find myself trying to be understanding and loving, and like, well, you know, and they, they have this going on, and they have that going on, and, and you know, <laughs> and sometimes we just need to say, no, nah, just stop sinning. You're messing up. You just need to stop. Because that's how God thinks about it. God doesn't say, I understand. God never understands your sin, Ever. One of the things I struggle with when people talk about God like he's some great big old granddaddy. You know, some of y'all are grandparents. All you grandparents out there, just slip your hand up. All of you. Y'all are easy touches, right? Your grandkids, your grandkids get whatever they want from you. Come on. You're a piece of cake. They love it when they get to go to your house. They carve you up like melted butter. Come on. I know. I don't have grandkids. Our staff kids, some of them, my gosh, they ask me. I, Debbie, Debbie just flat says he'll, and I tell some of I've told, I never tell your kids no, right? Didn't I tell you all that? So that's your job. It's not my job to tell you. Yeah, I tell your kids no if they cost too much money. When they start slipping into the hundreds past the fifties, then maybe, but, you know, but basically, you know, if their kids tell me, that's your job to tell them no, not my job. And that's how we act sometimes. Like God thinks that way. He doesn't think that way. God, God doesn't understand you sinning. Jesus never sinned. In Sunday, we're going to talk about this, but when Jesus took on the sins of the world, you know what God did? He abandoned Jesus on the cross. That's what God did. So Paul says, just stop sinning. Verse 35. Now, verse 35 begins the section ends with verse 58. We're not going to get all that, but he begins to kind of to lay out a little bit what our bodies will be like. And I'm going to cover it. So he says, uh, someone will say, Paul does this great with these straw man arguments. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they have come? That's a pretty good question. Well, how are they going to be raised up? What kind of body are they going to have? Well, that, that's, that's not a bad question to ask. I'm curious. I'd like to know what kind of body I'm going to have. I've heard some people say, well, we're going to have the body of a 33-year-old because that's how old Jesus was when he went to heaven. Well, we don't know for sure that he was 33. And, you know, the other thing that I would say is I don't necessarily want my body. Uh, Tom Selleck, when he was doing Magnum P.I., I would like that body. My wife wanted me to have that body on earth, but, uh, you know. So, uh, so I, I might, you know, Lord, am I going to have my hair back? So here's what he says. You fool. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to call people fools. Paul does that occasionally. But, you know, sometimes there's a re- do you ever Do you ever just think, you're an idiot? You ever think that? I mean, not wives to husbands. I get that all the time. But, I mean, sometimes look at people. And sometimes we're in staff meeting. And I, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but to be foolish is to lack wisdom. And that's what he's saying. You're playing the part of someone who lacks wisdom. Who doesn't get it. That which you sow, 
does not come to life unless it dies. He takes a fundamental lesson from agriculture, which was so common back then. I, I am not a farming guy. I've shared, I, maybe I shared here. I passed a little church in Middle Springs uh, for about 14 months. And it was in the middle of nowhere, and I tried to plant a garden to connect, and I'm like, was the worst gardener ever. I grew, I grew tomatoes and jalapenos really well. But one thing that even I know is that when you plant a seed, the seed is dead, it dies. The amazing thing is that when you think about planting a seed, the fruit never looks like the seed. It's amazing. I mean, we, you know, we have some bananas at the house, you know, and there's seeds in there. The, the banana doesn't look like the seed. It's completely different, you know. Um, all, all, it's, just, it's a law of nature. The, the law of sowing and reaping is used so much by Paul. Even Jesus. It was such a common metaphor of so much of life. He says it dies. And, and that's what you sow. You do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain. Perhaps a fleet or something. So you don't, you don't sow what's going to become. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. So he, here's a fundamental thing about life. What kind of body we're going to get? Well, you know, he doesn't go into detail here. We'll see that later on next week, perishable and imperishable. But one of the things he points out is you don't get a new body until you first die. You don't, you don't get the banana if the seed is still living. In fact, you got to pull the banana off the tree. You got to peel it open. And, and, and then it's dead. It stops. It stops. You know, we, we buy the bananas. They're kind of green. We put them out and they get ripe. They die. Everything that hangs around after it dies gets ripe. Bananas, apples, people, <laughs> they all do that. They all start to decay. <laughs> That was a morbid illustration, wasn't it? <laughs> Verse 39, but all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another of birds, I mean, another of flesh of beasts, of birds, another of fish. And so he says, not all flesh is the same. And by the way, our resurrected bodies won't be this type of flesh but it'll be something. I mean, when Jesus was resurrected, I, I'm going to make this wild assumption. I don't know why I'm going to do this. But I'm going to assume that our resurrected bodies will be like Jesus' res resurrected body. I, you know, I'm just going to go off that. I don't know why. I just think that's probably a safe bet. Well, they recognized Jesus. They knew it was him. But it was different. It was the same but different. And that's how our resurrected bodies will be. It'll be, it'll be us, but it'll be some degree of difference. But everything's, everything, so there's, there's different kind of fleshes, he said. There's also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, and one another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star and glory. So what he's saying is this. There is a glory to our earthly life, body. There is a glory to it. We are created in the image of God. There's a glory to it. First Sunday in May, I'm preaching about the image of God. And the man's created the image of God. It kicks off our series on helping parents deal with the culture. And it's going to be a great series. Uh, the staff's doing it. Uh, I'm going to start it off. You need to come to that one. There is, there is a certain glory. But there is a greater glory in the body to come for the, for the follower of Christ. And so Paul... And, and, and got to, next week, he finishes this, all this thought off, and it'll be 
what he says then is really good. Oftentimes read at funerals. But what Paul is saying is, of course there's a resurrection of the human. When you die, that is not the end. When you plant the seed, it, think about it. That which is dead lives again. This is an amazing thing when you just think about it. That which is dead lives again. And for the Christian, we die, we live again. And that is one of the great messages we have and the great hopes we have. And so one of the things that we need to really be sure is that we don't complicate things. When, when we deal with the resurrection, oh man, we complicate it so much. We go so far beyond what the biblical writers tell us. Now, how many of you in the last three months have sat there thinking about the coming of Jesus and been trying to figure out when's he coming, what the sign is going to be? Is this the sign that Christ is returning? Is that the sign that Christ is returning? I mean, you're trying to figure it all out. We're not even supposed to do that. How many times do we forget what is most important? That he is coming. And when he comes, everything's different. Our faith is ultimately rewarded with the resurrected body. And sadly and tragically, all those without Christ meet their final, ultimate destination. Those are the things we think about, should. And with that in mind, then here's what I know. If that is true, then my primary concern in this life isn't to figure out when he's coming or what my body will be like. My primary concern is to help those who do not know him come to know him. Because at death and or the second coming of Christ, it's too late for them to come to Jesus. And there are a lot of people I know and I love who I don't want them to not experience the resurrection of Jesus the way I will. And it's the same for you. So if I may make one simple suggestion, quit wasting everybody's time trying to figure out the date of his coming and start sharing with people he is coming and they need him. With that in mind, we're through. <laughs>